This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. If you're like me and have had an interest in creating your own podcast but don't really know where to get started, let me tell you about Anchor. Anchor is the completely free creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Once you've finished recording, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard across all podcast streaming platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership right from your very first episode. It's everything that you need to make and distribute a podcast all in one place. To get started, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now this episode is a personal one for me. Maybe even an indulgent sidetrack from what we've come to cover on the show so far. This is a story that I grew up hearing time and time again as a child, and for many years was the face of the unexplainable and the unknown for me. We've spent so much time together over the last two seasons examining how historical events and trauma-informed locations have shaped the world of the spiritual and paranormal. But what about the protagonists of our monster stories and urban legends? The elusive nightmares, always avoiding our prying eyes. The Mothman, the Jersey Devil, Bigfoot, the Giant Squid. In today's episode, we plunge into the cold waters of the highlands of northern Scotland. Deep down, in fact, in search of one such evasive character, whose stories begin almost 1,500 years ago the monster known as Loch Ness. Now, I bet most of you are like me, assuming you already know everything there is to know about Nessie, from the tales told about a cafeteria lunch table as a bumbly adolescent. Just me. What else could there possibly be to this story? But that is where both you and I, it seems, would be quite wrong. This story ventures deeper and darker than I ever imagined, and you'll be shocked to discover it prominently includes English occultist, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer, Alistair Crowley. Loch Ness has been steeped in failed rituals, captured demons, mysterious time slips, eerie portals into other dimensions, and while countless acclaimed photos and stories have been clearly disproven, it doesn't discount the plethora of stories and thousands of people that remain to this day swearing by what they've seen. On today's episode, we are delving beneath the watery abyss in search of the Loch Ness Monster. Hi, my name is Jeremy Haig, psychic medium, tarot reader, and proud nerd of the occult and the spiritual. I've been talking to the dead since before I can remember. Hearing their stories and listening to their lessons radically changed my life and taught me to become more curious 
and peel back the layers of the world around me. On this podcast, I invite you on a journey as we discuss spirituality hot topics with specialists and practitioners from across the witchcraft community, pull and explore monthly collective tarot readings, and recount lost or forgotten paranormal stories from around the world. This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. Loch Ness is a large freshwater loch or lake in the Scottish Highlands, extending for approximately 23 miles southwest of Inverness. It takes its name from the River Ness, which flows from the northern end and is considered to be derived from an old Celtic word meaning roaring one. Loch Ness is the second largest Scottish loch by surface area after Loch Lomond at 22 square miles, but due to its great depth at over 755 feet deep, that's as deep as the Golden Gate Bridge is tall, it is the largest by volume in the British Isles and the second deepest loch in Scotland after Loch Morar. It contains more water than all the lakes in England and Wales combined and is the largest body of water in the Glenmore or Great Glen, which bisects the highlands and forms part of the system of waterways across Scotland, running from Inverness in the north to Fort William in the south. The Glenmore was created by civil engineer Thomas Telford and is linked by means of the Caledonian Canal opened in 1822. The lock is so massive in terms of volume, to put it another way, you could fit every human being on planet Earth inside of the lock three times over. Now just imagine what could be capable of lurking in that expansive, watery emptiness. She is as mysterious as she is deep, with additional underwater canals connecting it to neighboring lochs and even on to the ocean. Her murky water, saturated by the heavy deposits of peat along the shores, is nearly impenetrable to the light. Scientists and researchers joke in a knowing tone that we probably know more about the rocks on the surface of the moon than we do about the rocks at the bottom of Loch Ness. For more than a millennia, over 1,900 people have claimed to witness a massive creature rising from these murky and mysterious waters. These reported sightings span across over 1,600 individual events, meaning that over 300 of these sightings were reported by multiple people at the same time, or even large groups in some cases. For hundreds of years, the sightings of these mysterious creatures have ended just as suddenly as they began, leaving more investigators, mystics, explorers, and believers with more questions left unanswered. The study of creatures like the Beast of Loch Ness falls into an area of research called cryptozoology, or the pseudoscience and subculture that searches for and studies unknown, legendary, or extinct animals whose present existence is disputed or unsubstantiated, particularly those popular in folklore such as Bigfoot or the Yeti. One of the important and validating parts of cryptozoology and its research comes in the rewarding phenomenon where mythological creatures described by indigenous peoples across centuries often end up being true and become verified species in zoology. 
For example, the remains of the Kolokont discovered off the coast of Africa in 1938. A stumpy, electric blue fish discovered to be extinct over 65 million years, and yet tales of identical blue fish had been told throughout folk tales of indigenous peoples of the area for centuries. How could they know, unless oral tradition had not created a new creature, but kept an ancient one alive? The Siberian unicorn, and even the mighty and terrifying kraken assumed to be a figment of imagination, was proved valid when the giant squid was first videotaped in 2004. Time after time, indigenous stories and assumed mythological creatures have put our science to shame, reminding us again and again how little we actually know. Perhaps Nessie is no different. Now there are four heavily supported explanations for the phenomenon known as Loch Ness, some more likely than the rest. The first, of course, is the claim that somewhere within the cavernous loch lives a form of Plesiosaurus, a large marine reptile that lived during the early part of the Jurassic period and whose complete skeletons can be found throughout England. It is distinguishable by its small head, long and slender neck, broad turtle-like body, a short tail, and two pairs of large elongated seal-like paddles. While unlikely, we'll come to find that there are some intriguing elements to this claim, a popular explanation at the time, and the following arguments have been made against it. First, in a newspaper article written in October 2006 called, quote, Why the Loch Ness Monster is no Plesiosaur, Leslie Noe of the Sedgwick Museum in Cambridge said, quote, The osteology of the neck makes it absolutely certain that the Plesiosaur could not lift its head up, swan-like, out of the water. Another argument is that the loch is only about 10,000 years old, dating to the end of the last ice age. Before then, it was frozen for about 20,000 years. Thirdly, if creatures similar to plesiosaurs lived in Loch Ness, they would be seen frequently, since they would have to surface several times a day to breathe. The second theory, swinging to yet the other end in terms of being unrealistic, is the possibility of some form of giant fish like a sturgeon, which can grow to lengths of over 16 feet. The other ideas proposed include a giant form of eel or giant catfish. Now, in Europe, it's not uncommon to capture a form of Wells catfish that can grow to 10 feet long and live over 80 years. In 1980, Swedish naturalist and author Bent Sjögren wrote that Scottish beliefs in lake monsters such as the Loch Ness Monster are associated with their own Kelpie legends and folktales. According to Sjögren, accounts of Loch Monsters have changed over time, originally describing something more horse-like in form, but they were all intended to keep children away from the loch. A study of pre-1933 Highland folklore references to Kelpies, water horses, and water bulls indicated that Ness was the loch most frequently sighted. While the monster hysteria of the early 1900s made Nessie truly famous around the globe, it certainly was not where this story can claim a beginning. To do that, we have to turn back the clock. In fact, you might as well throw the whole clock away entirely, because we're going back over 1,500 years.
The earliest report of a monster in the vicinity of Loch Ness appears in the biography of the life of St. Columba and is firmly rooted in the paranormal. According to the author, who it should be noted was writing about these events a century after they occurred, Irish missionary St. Columba arrived at Loch Ness around 565 AD, attempting to convert the so-called barbaric Scottish Picts, a group of people who lived in what is now northern and eastern Scotland during late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, to Christianity. St. Columba and his followers arrived at the River Ness when he encountered several residents burying a man who had been savagely bitten. They explained to him that the man was swimming in the river when he was attacked by a water beast that mauled him and dragged him underwater despite their attempts to rescue him by boat. Columba then sent one of his followers to swim across the river to get the boat left behind on the other side. Suddenly, the beast appeared from the water again and slowly rose and let out an ear-splitting roar. The beast then approached Columba's follower, but as Columba stood upon the shore and raised his arms in the sign of the cross, he declared, Go no further. Do not touch the man. Go back at once. The creature stopped, as if it had been pulled back by ropes, and then fled. Columba's men and the Picts gave thanks for what they perceived to be a miracle. Believers in the Loch Ness Monster point to this story set in the River Ness as evidence of the creature's existence as early as the 6th century. Skeptics question the narrative's reliability, noting that the water beast stories were extremely common in medieval times, and the tale probably recycles a common motif attached to a local landmark. The best-known article that began attracting a great deal of attention about the creature was published on May 2nd, 1933, in the Inverness Courier, about a large, quote, beast, or, quote, whale-like fish. The article by Alex Campbell, water bailiff for Loch Ness and a part-time journalist, discussed a famous sighting by a Miss Aldi McKay. Her story describes an enormous creature with the body of a whale rolling in the water in the loch on April 15, 1933. The word monster was reportedly applied for the very first time in Campbell's article, although some reports claim that it was coined by editor Evan Barron. Quote, the creature disported itself, rolling and plunging for fully a minute, its body resembling that of a whale, and the water cascading and churning like a simmering cauldron. Soon, however, it disappeared in a boiling mass of foam. Both onlookers confessed that there was something uncanny about the whole thing, for they realized that here was no ordinary denizen of the depths, because, apart from its enormous size, the beast, in taking the final plunge, sent out waves that were big enough to have been caused by a passing steamer. When McKay looked upon the beast in the water, she reportedly cried out, Stop! The beast! In the late 1980s, a naturalist interviewed Aldi McKay about the situation again, and she admitted to already knowing then, back in 1933, that there had been an oral tradition of a beast in the loch, well before her claimed sighting. This was also the very first time that the expression Loch Ness Monster was ever published, and the name has stuck to this day. The sensation ignited. I'm the monster of Loch Ness. Hawkeye, Hawkeye, oh yes. 
Billions of barnacles are clinging to my tail. Every night is my delight to gobble up the whale. I'm the monster of luck. Modern interest in the monster continued again with a sighting on July 22, 1933, only months later, when George Spicer and his wife saw, quote, a most extraordinary form of animal cross the road in front of their car. They described the creature as having a large body, about four feet high and 25 feet long, with a long, wavy, narrow neck, slightly thicker than an elephant's trunk, and as long as the 10 to 12 foot width of the road. They saw no limbs. It lurched across the road toward the lock 20 yards away, leaving a trail of broken undergrowth in its wake. Spicer described it as, quote, the dearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that I've ever seen in my life. It had an animal in its mouth and had a body that was, quote, fairly big with a high back. But if there were any feet, they must have been of the web kind. And as for a tail, I cannot say, as it moved so rapidly. And when we got to the spot, it had already disappeared into the loch. By the end of 1933, the Loch Ness Monster's legend had grown ferociously. In December, the Daily Mail commissioned Marmaduke Wetherill, a big game hunter, to locate the sea serpent. Within 48 hours of his arrival to the loch, Wetherill claimed to have found evidence. Along the lake's shore, he found large footprints which he believed belonged to, quote, a very powerful soft-footed animal about 20 feet long, and he claimed that the prints were only a few hours old. However, Upon closer inspection, zoologists at the Natural History Museum determined that the tracks were identical to and made with an umbrella stand or ashtray made with a hippopotamus leg as a base. Wetherill's role in the hoax is unknown. The news only seemed to spur efforts to prove the monster's existence. The Daily Mail, however, was mortified and embarrassed, and Wetherill's career was torn to pieces. He disappeared from the limelight, but the news only seemed to fuel Nessie fever. On January 5th, 1934, a motorist, Arthur Grant, claimed to have nearly hit the creature while approaching a village near the northeastern end of the loch at about 1 a.m. on a moonlit night. According to Grant, and similar to other descriptions of the time, the creature had a small head attached to a very long neck. When the creature saw him, it crossed the road back to the loch. Grant, a veterinary student, described it as a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur, and he rushed to the edge of the loch to search for the beast, but only saw ripples. Grant produced a sketch of the creature that he saw, and it was examined by zoologist Maurice Burton, who stated that it was consistent with the appearance and behavior of an otter. Regarding the long size of the creature reported by Grant, it was suggested that this was simply a faulty observation due to the port-like conditions. Hmm. However, it was in 1934 that the legend of the Loch Ness Monster took its place in permanent modern lore. For the first time ever, Nessie had been caught on camera, and it stopped the entire world in its tracks. If there was any public doubt as to the existence of a monster of some sort in the waters of the Loch Ness, this iconic photograph, now known as the Surgeon's Photograph, convinced the world. The photo was supposedly taken by Robert Kenneth Wilson, a London gynecologist, as he stumbled to the lock's edge to relieve himself on a long drive. It was later published in the Daily Mail on April 21, 1934, 
and Wilson's refusal to have his name associated with the photo at the time led to it being known simply as the surgeon's photograph. According to Wilson, he was looking at the lock when he saw a movement. Panicked, he grabbed his camera and snapped four photos. Only two exposures came out clearly. The first reportedly shows a small head and back, and the second shows a similar head in a diving position. This first photo became well-known, and the second attracted little publicity because of its blurriness. For 60 years, the photo was considered proof, evidence of the monster's existence, although skeptics have dismissed it as driftwood, an elephant, an otter, or a bird. The photo scale primarily was controversial, and frankly, it's the biggest hang-up I've had with this photo my entire life since childhood. It is often shown cropped, making the creature seem large, and the ripples shown looking like waves, while the uncropped shot shows the other end of the lock with the monster in the center. The ripples in the photo were found to fit the size and pattern of small ripples, rather than the large ones claimed to be photographed up close. Analysis of the original image fostered even further doubt. In 1993, the makers of the Discovery Communications documentary Loch Ness Discovered analyzed the uncropped image and indicated that the object was small, only about two to three feet long. Since 1994, most agree that this photo was an elaborate hoax, although at the time it captured and dominated the world's attention for decades. But 1994 was actually not the first time questions began to rise about the photograph's validity. It had already been described as fake in a Sunday Telegraph article that fell into obscurity from December 7, 1975. Details of how the photo were taken was published in the 1999 book, Nessie, The Surgeon's Photograph Exposed, which contains a facsimile of the 1975 Sunday Telegraph article. The creature photographed was reportedly a toy submarine built by Christian Sperling. Ironically, the son-in-law of the very same scorned Marmaduke Wetherill. Wetherill, if you remember, had been publicly ridiculed by his employer, the Daily Mail, after he found what he claimed to be Nessie footprints that turned out to be a hoax. To get revenge on the Daily Mail, Wetherill perpetrated this hoax with his co-conspirators, Sperling, Ian Wetherill, his son, who bought the material for the fake, and Maurice Chambers, an insurance agent. The toy submarine was bought from F.W. Woolworths, and its head and neck were made from a wood putty. After testing it in a local pond, the group went to Loch Ness, where Ian Wetherill took the photos. When they heard a water bailiff approaching, Duke Wetherill sunk the model with his foot and, quote, it is presumably still there somewhere in Loch Ness. Chambers gave the photographic plates to Wilson, a friend of his who enjoyed, quote, a good practical joke. He sold the first photo to the Daily Mail, who then announced to the world that the monster had been photographed. Very little is known of the second photo, however. It is often ignored by researchers who believe its quality is too poor and its differences from the first photo too great to warrant analysis. It shows a head similar to the first photo, with a more turbulent wave pattern and possibly taken at a different time and location in the lock. Some believe it to be an earlier, cruder attempt at the hoax, and when the plates were developed, Wilson was no longer interested in the second photo and allowed Morrison to keep the negative, which allowed the photo to be rediscovered years later. 
Hoax or not, their brilliant photo went on to become one of the most important, most viewed, and most influential images, as well as most influential hoaxes, of the 20th century. It is from this hoax alone that many in the world today still remain convinced of the absence of some form of creature in the murky waters of Loch Ness. But is that fair? Is one scorned man's attack at the newspaper who caught his lie really enough to warrant throwing away over 2,000 written records and sightings going back 1,500 years? Some hardcore believers have called into question Sperling's claim of the photo being a hoax, citing how difficult it would have been at the time to track down a toy submarine and some form of putty or plastique to create the illusion back in 1934. But in this case, we have to take them at their word. Perhaps they were made to create a hoaxing of their hoax in order to quell some of the Nessie mania. Who knows? On May 29th, 1938, South African tourist G.E. Taylor filmed something in the lock for three minutes on 16mm color film. The film was obtained by popular science writer Maurice Burton, who did not show it to other researchers. A single frame from the video was published in his 1961 book, The Elusive Monster. His analysis concluded that what was videotaped was a floating object and not an animal. Later on in the same year, on August 15th, William Fraser, chief constable of Invernessshire, wrote a letter that the monster existed beyond doubt and expressed concern about a hunting party that had arrived with a custom-made harpoon gun determined to catch the monster, quote, dead or alive. He believed his power to protect the monster from the hunters was, quote, very doubtful, and the letter was released by the National Archives of Scotland on April 27th, 2010. A year later, in December 1954, sonar readings were taken from the fishing boat Rival 3. Its crew noted a large object keeping pace with the vessel at a depth of 479 feet deep. It was detected for about 2,600 feet before contact was lost and then regained. Previous sonar attempts were inconclusive or negative. Aeronautical engineer Tim Dinsdale filmed a hump that left a wake crossing Loch Ness in 1960. Dinsdale, who reportedly had three sightings on his final day of searching after almost 300 days on the water, described what he saw as reddish with a blotch on its side. Quote, At first, I saw the back at some range from the shore, and I shot this piece of film, which is now quite famous. The section of my film shows the back of the animal, you can see it moving slowly off across the water, creating this glassy wake. It zigzags slowly and begins to submerge. In this moment, you can see a seagull fly through the frame, which helps to establish that there's no faking with regard to scale. Approaching the far shore, the creature is fully submerged and creating this big wash. As you can see, the wash is parallel to the far shore. The animal is subsurface now, making this long wake. And for comparison, you can see a boat that I sent out afterwards, creating a propeller wash for comparison. He was convinced that he had captured the Loch Ness Monster on camera. But others were skeptical, saying that the hump cannot be ruled out as being a boat. And when the contrast is increased, a man in a boat can arguably be seen. However, 
1993, Discovery Communications produced the same documentary, Loch Ness Discovered, with a digital enhancement of the Dinsdale film. The person who enhanced the film noticed a shadow in the negative that was not obvious in the developed film. By enhancing and overlaying the frames, he found what appeared to be the rear body of an underwater creature. Quote, Before I saw the film, I thought the Loch Ness Monster was a load of rubbish. Having done the enhancement, I'm not so sure. The media frenzy that followed the release of the Dinsdale film led to the formation of the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau in 1962. The Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau, or LNPIB, was a UK-based society formed in 1962 by Norman Collins, R.S.R. Fitter, politician David James, Peter Scott, and Constance White to, quote, study Loch Ness to identify the creature known as the Loch Ness Monster or determine the cause of reports of it. The society's name was later shortened to the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, LNIB, and it later disbanded only 10 years later in 1972. The LNIB had an annual subscription charge which covered administration. Its main activity was encouraging groups of self-funded volunteers to watch the lock from vantage points with film cameras and telescopic lenses night and day. No one had ever attempted to monitor or investigate the lock to this scale before. It was the biggest monster hunt in history. From 1965 to 1972, the LNIB had a caravan camp and viewing platform along the lock and sent observers to other locations up and down the shore. According to the Bureau's 1969 annual report, it had 1,030 members, of whom 588 of which were from the UK. David James, co-founder of the investigation, stated, quote, We want to try and get a tissue sample which will be recoverable, and we want to try and make a telemetric implant, let's say to put in a small wireless transmitter, so we'll be equipped with a very modern apparatus, namely a crossbow. Bold and positive claims, considering this lock is in the highlands of Scotland, where the average water temperature was lucky to rise about 41 to 42 degrees Fahrenheit. You certainly won't be swimming here. But the fervor continued. And in 1969, World Book Encyclopedia decided to do its own Loch Ness Monster investigation, using a submarine for the very first time. With Dan Scott Taylor at the command, the submarine submerged into the cold, murky blackness. Only moments later, the submarine re-emerged. Clearly startled, Taylor explained that as he descended, the Loch Ness Monster clearly and loudly clanged against the side of his craft, bumping him off course. Taylor refused to continue the investigation, and the expedition came to an end. In 1972, a group of researchers from the Academy of Applied Sciences in America, led by Robert H. Rines, conducted a search for the monster involving sonar examination of the lock's depths for unusual activity. A submersible camera with a floodlight was deployed to record images below the surface. If Rines detected anything on the sonar, he would turn the light on and take pictures. Quote, It just isn't possible for me intellectually to believe that everybody who thinks he has seen these big things is either drunk, a fool, or doesn't know the difference between a log and something that is an animal. All we're doing, if we do succeed, will be getting verification of what I believe a lot of honest people have said they've seen. 
on August 8th, Ryan's Raytheon DE725C sonar unit, operating at a frequency of 200 kilohertz and anchored at a depth of 36 feet, identified a moving target or targets estimated by echo strength at 20 to 30 feet in length. Specialists from Raytheon, Kongsberg Maritime, Hydroacoustics, Marty Klein of MIT, and Ira Dwyer of MIT's Department of Ocean Engineering were all on hand to examine the data. P. Skitsky of Raytheon suggested that the data indicated a 10-foot protuberance projecting from one of the echoes. Concurrent with these sonar readings, a floodlit camera obtained a pair of underwater photographs. Both depicted what appeared to be a rhomboid flipper over eight feet long. Although skeptics have dismissed the images as depicting the bottom of the lock, air bubbles, a rock, or a fish fin. The apparent flipper was photographed in different positions, indicating movement. The first flipper photo is better known than the second, and both are enhanced and retouched from the original negatives. According to team member Charles Wyckoff, the photos were retouched to superimpose the flipper. The original enhancement showed a considerably less distinct object, but no one is truly sure just how the originals were altered. Another sonar contact was made, this time with two objects estimated to be about 30 feet long. The strobe camera photographed two large objects surrounded by a flurry of bubbles. Some interpreted the objects as two plesiosaur-like animals, suggesting several large animals living in Loch Ness. This photograph has rarely been published. Quote, the unanimous agreement among the sonar people is that we did, in fact, detect large moving objects, and our best picture, improved by enhancement, was of a flipper, and it coincided exactly with the 10-foot measurement on the sonar. A second search was conducted by Ryan's in 1975. Some of the photographs, despite their obviously murky quality and lack of concurrent sonar readings, did indeed seem to show unknown animals in various positions and strange lightings. One photograph appeared to show the head, neck, and upper torso of a plesiosaur-like animal. But again, skeptics argue that, that the object is a log due to the lump in its chest area, the mass of sediment in the full photo, and the object's log-like skin texture. Another photograph seems to depict a horned gargoyle head, consistent with that of some sightings of the monster. However, again, skeptics point out that a tree stump was filmed later during Operation Deep Scan in 1987, which bore a striking resemblance to the gargoyle head photographed. Operation Deep Scan was conducted in 1987 and consisted of 24 boats equipped with echo-sounding equipment which were deployed across the width of the lock from one side to another, and simultaneously sent acoustic waves as they crossed the water. This was believed to be the way, once and for all, to put to bed the question of the existence of something in the depths of Loch Ness. They were going to capture whatever was there. Investigator Adrian Schein said to the press, quote, Isn't it interesting that we've got so many people here watching me investigate this myth? People are obviously interested in it. That is quite obvious. Now you can talk about the deep aspects of man needing monsters, but I'm a simple naturalist. I'm intrigued by this wildlife mystery. I'd like to get to the bottom of it. According to BBC News, the scientists made three sonar contacts with unidentified objects of unusual size and strength recorded between 256 and nearly 600 feet deep.
The size was considered to be larger than a shark, but smaller than a whale. Analysis of the echo sounder images seemed to indicate debris in the bottom of the lock, although there was motion in three of the photographs. Could one or all of these anomalies be Nessie in the flesh? Sonar expert Daryl Lawrence, founder of Lawrence Electronics and donor of a number of the echo sounder units used in the operation, said, quote, There's something here that we don't understand, and there's something here that's larger than a fish, maybe some species that haven't been detected before. I don't know. Many have suggested that these anomalies picked up were simply seals, and that may be the case, but here's the thing. Seals are only ever known to come into the lock every four to five years, following the salmon, so it's not a common occurrence, but it is possible. This has led to a strange theory that perhaps the Celtic sea serpent folklore is somehow based around a form of long-necked seal yet to be discovered. Who knows? Seems unlikely, if you ask me. On May 21st, 1977, Anthony Dock Shields, camping next to the Urquhart Castle on the shores of the loch, took, quote, some of the clearest pictures of the monster to this day. Shields, himself a magician and psychic, claimed to have summoned the animal out of the water. He later described it as an elephant squid, claiming the long neck shown in the photographs are actually the squid's trunk and that the white spot on the base of its neck is its eye. Due to the lack of ripples, his photographs have been declared a hoax by a number of people and received its name because of its staged look. On May 26, 2007, 55-year-old laboratory technician Gordon Holmes videotaped something that he said changed his life. Quote, I noticed there was something in the water, bubbling along at a ferocious speed. I quickly grabbed the camcorder off my back seat, and about 30 seconds later, over to the right, I spotted this particular creature or object, and it was this jet black thing about 46 feet long, moving fast moving fairly fast in the water. Because the object was moving so quickly and Holmes was struggling to keep it in his viewfinder, you'll notice he repeatedly keeps having to zoom out, which ended up adding significant validity to his footage. The far shore and edge of the lock was clearly visible and other reference items in frame allowed the eye to give some sense of scale and speed. Quote, At some point in the footage, he continues, there appears to be something in the line close to where this thing was going, and it sort of scampers out of the way for a bit, diverting to the right suddenly. Even crazier still, near the end of Holmes' footage, as again he zooms out of the moving object, it becomes very clear that in the distance there is yet another object moving rapidly alongside the first, only 50 or 60 feet beyond. He didn't even realize or see it on the camera at the time. Adrian Schein, a marine biologist at the Loch Ness 2000 Center, described the footage as among the very best he had ever seen. BBC Scotland went on to broadcast the video on May 29, 2007, and STV News North Tonight aired the footage on the 28th of May, 2007. On August 27, 2013, tourist David Elder presented a five-minute video of a mysterious wave in the loch. According to Elder, the wave was produced by a 15-foot solid black object just under the surface of the water. Elder, 50, from East Kilbride, South Larkinshire, was taking a photo of a swan at the Fort Augustus Pier on the southwestern end of the loch when he captured the movement. He said, quote, 
The water was very still at the time, and there were no ripples coming off the wave and no other activity on the water. Skeptics suggested that the wave may have been caused by a wind gust. Again, on April 19th, 2014, it was reported that a satellite image on Apple Maps showed what appeared to be a large creature just below the surface of Loch Ness. At the loch's far north end, the image appeared to be about 98 feet long. Possible explanations were the wake of a boat, with the boat itself perhaps being lost in image stitching or low contrast, seal-caused ripples, or floating wood. But to this day, it has never truly been explained. In 2019 alone, over 15 different documented sightings were recorded, and some of the more recent sightings at Loch Ness have occurred only days ago. A number of explanations have been suggested to account for the sightings of the creature. According to Ronald Binns, a former member of the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau, there is probably no single explanation for the monster. Binns went on to write two skeptical books, the 1983 book The Loch Ness Mystery Solved and his 2017 book The Loch Ness Mystery Reloaded. In these books, he contends that an aspect of human psychology is the ability of the eye to see what it wants and expects to see. They may be categorized as misidentifications of known animals, misidentifications of inanimate objects or effects, reinterpretations of Scottish folklore, hoaxes, and exotic species of large animals. A reviewer wrote that Binns had, quote, evolved into the author of the definitive skeptical book on the subject. Binns does not call the sightings a hoax, but, quote, a myth in the true sense of the term, and states that, quote, the monster is a sociological phenomenon. After 1983, the search for the possibility that there just might be continues to enthrall a small number for whom eyewitness evidence outweighs all other considerations. But what about other explanations? Explanations that would shed some light on why you're listening to a so far scientific and not even remotely paranormal episode. Here's where the story changes. What if this mysterious monster doesn't actually exist in our time or in our dimension? Many maintain science will never be able to explain the Loch Ness Monster because the creature isn't a being of flesh and blood at all. Perhaps Nessie is a creature that only exists in the realms of the supernatural, alternate dimensions that somehow are able to be seen at Loch Ness. A theory has arisen suggesting that Nessie is, in fact, a creature lost in time, appearing in the loch almost as a rip between dimensions, allowing us to see back to the Jurassic period. Some have suggested that the loch itself is a route into the hollow earth theory for those who subscribe to those beliefs that is definitely an episode for another day, and that whatever phenomenon viewers experience is related directly to whatever is occurring beneath the surface of the planet. Some believe that there's a spaceship at the bottom of the loch, and the sightings are directly related to the comings and goings of the craft. While the press have dubbed the beast Nessie, a semi-non-threatening female name and one that has been turned into plush toys and children's books, the supernatural possible explanations often paint a far darker picture. The curiosities of this dark creature caught the attention of one of the most infamous and well-known occultists of all time, Alistair Crowley. Crowley was a British occultist, writer, mountaineer, and a practitioner of magic, 
calling himself the Beast 666. A massive studier of the occult and mystic practices, he was denounced in his own time for his decadent lifestyle and had very few followers, but went on to become a cult figure after his death. Again, we'll save Crowley's full life story for another day, but he arrived at Loch Ness in 1899, eager to try his hand at solving the mystery of the monster. At the time, Black magic rituals and conjuring evil spirits played a near constant role in his practice, and his exploration into Loch Ness was no different. When Crowley arrived, his reputation as a wild drinker and partier preceded him, and the locals were not eager to bid him welcome. In fact, the London press dubbed him, quote, the wickedest man in the world. Crowley found a large property sitting on a bluff overlooking the loch, named Bolskin House, a remote place even today on the south side of Inverness on a steep cliff covered in trees. Crowley needed privacy as he attempted one of the largest summonings of his career, Bolskin House serving in his mind as an energetic focal point for his ritual. When he arrived, immediately Crowley began construction on an octagonal room on the back of the home to serve as his ritual space. He claimed Loch Ness was the perfect portal to connect with spirits, both good and evil, and in this case he actually claimed to be ridding the area of demons believed to curse the waters of Loch Ness in an extremely involved and risky six-month-long ritual. But Crowley ended up fleeing Bolskin House when his ritual was only partially completed. In his ritual workings, it is recorded that Crowley was indeed able to contact and summon three out of the four demons he was attempting to reach. But, overwhelmed, Crowley lost control of the ritual and couldn't call forth the final one, forcing him to release the three demons back into the area surrounding Loch Ness. It is reported that he was often seen afterwards at the shore of the loch, casting the bodies of dead sheep into the water to feed the hellish entities he had accidentally released upon the loch. Is it possible that the notorious, wickedest man in the world had inadvertently unleashed a malevolent force, perhaps appearing as a sea monster, into Loch Ness? There are many who do firmly believe and directly connect the current appearances of the Loch Ness Monster throughout the entirety of the 20th and 21st centuries, starting in 1933, directly to whatever Crowley was experimenting with on the shores of the Loch only 30 years prior, in 1899. Perhaps only Alistair Crowley knows truly what the beast is, and perhaps only he will know if the beast exists in flesh and blood. This has been an episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, written, researched, and edited by your host, Jeremy Haig. I would be honored if you'd consider one friend that you think might enjoy this episode and share it with them. There's nothing that brings me more joy than listening to episodes or songs that my friends recommend. So please share the love with your tribe. Listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment so that this one-man operation can take off to a whole new group of listeners. 
Please don't forget to visit my website, www.whenwallscantalktarot.com, to learn more about me, the show, and to purchase our brand new merch finally available on our online shop. Listeners to the podcast get an exclusive 10% off using the code WITCHCREW at checkout. Don't forget to reach out to me on Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces or email me at jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com. So long, paranormal adventurers, and I will see you next time on When Walls Can Talk.